0: All right. So welcome, Dr. Laura Stark. Thanks. So you are a cancer naturopath, and you're the president of the Saskatchewan Association of Naturopathic Doctors. I am indeed. And you're the Cancer Care Program Director at the Clit Health Inn, which is an alternative cancer care clinic.
1: In short order, yes.
0: Okay, yeah. So can you tell me about um, what is naturopathic medicine? I'm sure a lot of people know what it is, and some have an idea, but they don't quite know what it is, and some people are not quite sure.
1: It's true. I think there's a lot of perception that naturopathic medicine is uh, kind of a little bit of a quackery and or medical voodoo in a way. But really, we are trained as primary care physicians that um, approach the medical problem a little bit differently. So... Um, the model's a little bit different. We look at health in a really holistic sense. So that's one kind of main aspect to being an atropath. So we look at the person as a whole, not just physical, individual systems in the body, but looking on all those subtler layers from the physical to mental, emotional, spiritual even, um, recognizing that the things that influence a person's health go far beyond say, a chemical imbalance in the body. So when we look to evaluate someone's health, we're really looking um, deeply and broadly for all the factors that can influence uh, a person's health. Um,
0: So can you give me an example? So for example, if somebody comes in with a blood pressure problem Mm -hmm. in the doctor's world, we know how to measure it. We know what drugs there are, chemicals that will lower it. We can measure that too. And there's trials to say that this is effective and these are the side effects, and that's kind of what we go by. So you come with that problem, we know what the fix is. Somebody yes. comes in, and I'm a surgeon, and they come for an appendix, you know, what they get, what medications, surgery, this, this, that. So if somebody comes in with those problems or different mm-hmm. problems, what, how does your approach then differ? How does it work?
1: Indeed, so the conventional model really is find the diagnosis, And then institute treatment protocol um, versus naturopathically, we take a step a little further back. I don't really care so much about what a diagnosis label is. I'm really interested in what is going on in that person's physiology. So I'm asking those deeper questions of why is this problem, why is this symptom here? Why is this problem manifest? And what do I need to do in a person's physiology to correct it? So uh, a functional medicine approach, Um, people understand that that's what they do and naturopaths were kind of the original functional medicine doctors before they got fancy and uh, created their own functional medicine protocols to systematize it. But we're asking those physiological questions. So uh, hypertension, high blood pressure could be related to stress, right? We're looking at a person who has this fluctuating high systolic numbers, the top number of blood pressure. they're probably a little bit adrenal unstable. They might need some adaptogenic herbs to help them adapt to the stressors in their life uh, with more resilience. Um, A different situation, we might see a blood pressure that is kind of always elevated and a diastolic number is quite high. That's usually related back to liver function, and we find those cases more drug-resistant as well. That's because usually the drugs challenge the liver a little bit further and it's not actually correcting the physiology at, that is actually at the root of the problem so we're about digging to figure out the physiological root of what is really going on and trying to solve that
0: yeah maybe i oversimplified the medicine approach a little bit because <laughs> also in medicine there's a, like a broad differential for absolutely uh, for even what this, is going on exactly for even for blood pressure so usually like a good Traditional medical exam would be you know a full history and physical exam, and you know sometimes it is um, a lot of times it is stress or exacerbated by stress. Sometimes it's the adrenal adrenal tumors. Sometimes the treatment is surgical, even a lot. Yes, so, true. So that that that's kind of the same approach that uh, you know traditional or mainstream medicine would take. Western medicine a would little take. bit.
1: I think there is a, a difference though, um, so and it's the... quite. Nuanced. I think conventionally, there really is kind of these definitive answers that then roll out a, a treatment protocol. Mm-hmm. Versus um, in the naturopathic approach, it's far more open to subtlety and nuance, and we don't need kind of even definable diagnostic criteria. Um, for example, even in the interpretation of lab work, um, often. In the medical world, there isn't a diagnosis until you cross over a certain threshold, a certain line. And naturopathically, we look for those patterns, and we can treat them a lot earlier in the disease progression. So often people will come with symptoms that aren't diagnosable yet, but we can still dig into that root, whereas the medical world won't find that problem. And, well, and that tends to be the selection bias of the people who come to naturopaths, and we serve best. Because they don't find the answers in the medical world.
0: Mm. So, is it fair to say then that maybe you're not as much driven by diagnoses and thresholds? Is especially, that especially me
1: personally. Okay. Um, because I you're, think you're generally right. as well that yeah, we don't care as much about diagnoses. And a naturopathic diagnosis could be something like we might take a Chinese medicine lens and diagnose liver qi stagnation, and that's my high blood pressure diagnosis. Um, and so I'm not directly treating high blood pressure at all. I'm just treating liver energy in the body.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, so the other question is, how do you arrive at that? Because I'm, I would tell you that mm-hmm. a doctor to diagnose a liver problem, you know, would need history, physical examination signs, blood work to corroborate what's going on. Maybe mm-hmm. even some imaging, like an ultrasound or a CT or an MRI. Indeed. So but you, are, you would arrive at a diagnosis for liver, how would you make that?
1: We would use all the same information gathering procedures. Um, I think our view is a little bit different, probably, um, but naturopaths are really good history takers as well and pattern recognizers. So we do get trained in uh, traditional medicine paradigms like Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine that were developed before the time Um, In history where we actually looked inside bodies, right? A lot of the principles of Chinese medicine were founded before a body was even opened up We didn't know what the organs looked like even. So can you
0: tell me about Chinese medicine? Like what Mm. is the main premise of that?
1: Uh,
0: We hear a lot about it. We we know we know there's herbs. Yes, we know
1: there's herbs, there's acupuncture.
0: Yeah, so but in my mind herbs would be their version of medications because either chemical medications are derived from herbs and plants. Indeed. But do they have a different philosophy or an approach or what's that? Yeah.
1: um, So I'll group Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic because they're very similar. Ayurvedic comes from India? Yes. It was the precursor to Chinese medicine. Chinese medicine evolved out of Ayurvedic. Um, Basically, in essence, it's all about balancing the elements. So. Every aspect of our body and every aspect of our environment can be described in terms of the elements. In Chinese medicine, they describe five. Um, in Ayurvedic medicine, they describe six. Um, more of our Western philosophy, we have four elements, right? But doesn't really matter, um, the different systems. So we have a balance, or there is a certain balance, of the different levels of the elements, which in Chinese medicine are water, air, earth, fire, and wood.
0: Sounds like the last airbender. Right, it is. Yeah. That's exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's precisely the same. Yeah. Um, so, each of those elements have their characteristics. So, and when they're out of balance, we'll see different symptoms. Based on that.
0: So those elements, is that in each
1: organ? has
0: aspect or In both? each
1: organ, in each human, we're each born with a certain constitution that is our certain balance of elements. Or does each
0: element in a human involve certain organs? Both. Like water, would be kidney, something else, something else. Correct.
1: They have their organ associations, but um, there's kind of a constitutional look at it. Um, I'm supposedly a water constitution.
0: So how, who decides I, that? How do you know that? Who told you
1: that? A Chinese medicine practitioner. And how would he... I'm like, honestly not an expert. Chinese medicine is not my forte, no. but...
0: But he would have um, criteria to tell you that?
1: Absolutely. Okay. Um, interestingly, I learned a lot taking a baby massage, a Chinese medicine-based baby massage, and you can apparently tell babies apart by their different types of cry. You can see it manifest in people's personality. We describe people like having a fiery personality, no. or someone being really earthy, Right, like they're grounded, they're more heavy... Um, I wonder if someone can
0: change over time.
1: Absolutely. Well, there's arguments there. So we're supposedly born with our certain constitution. We can certainly manifest different levels of imbalance, right? And that's when we would become symptomatic. Um, Whether you can really change your constitution, kind of your natural set point. Supposedly, if you do enough kind of hard work immediately, um, A woman can change her constitution after giving birth to a baby in that kind of critical time where our, our body's like ripped open from maybe a Kundalini perspective or something like that. The channels are wide open after giving birth. You can exert enough influence on the system that you might be able to shift. A constitution, but that's the only instance I've ever heard. Well, of what I'm thinking of most, that. yeah,
0: what I'm thinking of mostly was, um, let's say, you know how you hear somebody would say, "Oh, I was much softer in my younger years, and I was sure. naive, and I was," but then they learned and they went through a lot of experiences in life, and now they're more tough and they you know.
1: Yes, actually, from, so I've not heard of this in a Chinese medicine paradigm, but shifting to another paradigm, the world of homeopathy and constitutional homeopathy. Um, Especially a system oh, I'm going to get the, the person's name wrong, but there's a, a particular system that was popularized or kind of created by um, no, nope, I'm not going to even remember exactly what country he's from. But anyway, had a little bit of training in this system uh, that treats uh, these various levels of our being with homeopathy, a miasmatic level, a constitutional level and a temperamental level. And traumas are a thing where significant life experiences can shift a homeopathic constitution. Um, I've seen that, that happen to my husband actually.:
0: So you think in Chinese medicine the same thing can happen. Like over time somebody can shift from, I don't know, a water to a fiery personality predominantly.
1: Maybe, yeah. Certainly, I've seen these examples in that homeopathy world, and my husband's example, in his 20s, he became severely ill with ulcerative colitis. And prior to that, he was um, like pretty stocky, earthy, heavier guy, thick, thick, dark hair. And through his illness, which lasted almost a decade, a lot of time spent in hospital, a lot of steroids, a lot of like harsh drugs, um, like he lost most of his hair. It changed color, it's a lot thinner. Um, And he's far. Like, thinner, he's uh, a different build now than he was in his earlier years. Mm.
0: Maybe that can explain some of what happened to me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> These shifts happen.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay. Um, so, you are talking about Chinese medicine, right? Um, is that um, incorporated into naturopathic medicine, into mainstream naturopathic medicine? or like, Do you use part of that in what you do? Or Because there, yes. are, there are specialists who do just Chinese medicine
1: yes correct yeah so naturopathic doctors are kind of generalists of the natural health world so um chinese medicine was adopted into most of the naturopathic schools in the 80s um it wasn't a part of it before and there's still some schools in the united states that don't teach chinese medicine chinese medicine as part of their curriculums um so those naturopaths who graduate do do not have that skill set but um most schools, yeah, since the 80s, teach a core of Chinese medicine, of homeopathy, of chiropractic and massage, nutritional medicine, uh, traditional Western herbal medicine, as well as, um, indeed, so since the 80s, all of our conventional or uh, and naturopathic schools include um, basic Chinese medicine, uh, Western herbal medicine, Nutritional, so meaning both dietary and um, supplemental nutritional approaches. Chiropractic and massage therapy. um, More traditional hydrotherapy and physical medicine um, approaches, like physio-like assessments. Uh, And I didn't mention homeopathy. Those are the core modalities that naturopaths are trained in broadly.
0: Okay, so there's no like small niche of this is naturopathic medicine principles like that's outside of all of that it's just all of these come together and then they form the universe of what naturopathic medicine is
1: well i guess those are the examples of our modalities we call them our just our treatment tools okay. um, there is a core philosophy that defines what naturopathic medicine is that
0: uses these tools
1: exactly So tell me about the tools that tools core are just philosophy tools. um oh no i'm not going to be able to quote all my naturopathic principles um most are derived just from an the, idea. Yeah. most of them are derived from the Hippocratic oath. Okay. Um, just like medical doctors um, first do no harm. That's one. I'll probably be able to remember them in Latin. Primum non non Not that I can pronounce Latin. Um, um, preventative medicine is one of the principles. Um, a doctor's teacher is one of the principles. Um, we educate our patients on how to maintain wellness. Um, Treat the individual is one of the core principles. Um, So meaning we have individualized treatment plans. We treat each patient separately. There's no such thing as just a treatment protocol that this is how we treat this condition. It's all individual to the patient. Um, The most core one is called um, the vis, um, the vis medicatrix naturae, the healing power of nature. That's that's the most important and core one to me. And a lot of people will describe it differently. Um, some of the simple, the healing power of nature. And they're like, oh, well, like herbs are healing in the most rudimentary sense. I think that's a little bit too kindergarten to explain what it is we do. Uh, to me, the healing power of nature, the vis medicatrix, speaks to the fact that there is a vital force in our body that is kind of the directing force to life and healing. And truly, that's what a naturopath is working with. No matter what the tool, they should be looking at the body, looking at the body's vital force, assessing that and figuring out how to address the issues with the vital force, force in any given person. So That gets to juicy stuff in our philosophy.
0: Yeah, I mean, the question is how do you do that exactly?
1: Yeah, well, and it points out some differences in different naturopathic approaches. So, in school, we make fun of the green allopaths, we call them, who will use naturopathic tools, but without recognizing that there's a vital force in a person. So, they're just applying herbs, they're just, you know, giving supplements. And so, they look like a naturopath. But um, here's one of the big arguments against most functional medicine doctors. They'll do this nice little assessment, find all these different imbalances in the body and they'll give you a supplement for every single one. You'll wind up with a prescription that's 72 supplements long. The body can't go in 72 directions. We understand as NatchPaths there's a therapeutic order we call it and there's kind of a hierarchy Understanding the, the root cause of an issue, um, kind of understanding the structure of how physiology works. There's superficial problems or symptoms and there's deeper layers to it. So w- different remedies will apply in those different layers. For me, our goal should always be working to the rootest root layer because if we work there, we'll have the ripple effect through all the rest versus you can work on just retaliating a superficial symptom right you can take the Tylenol to get rid of the fever but there was a purpose to that symptom and if we can honor that purpose looking back down to the physiology and supporting that a good old classic naturopath might apply um some hydrotherapy to actually encourage that fever to do its work to help kill the bug and and um, move expectoration out of the body to get the person well again, rather than just take the symptom away, which is going to prolong the illness. So, is it
0: fair to assume that there's no standard set of tools that a naturopath would use to distill a problem down to its core, or and to actually apply treatments? Correct. It's it's like, kind of like so, the practice of different naturopaths will vary way more amongst wildly. themselves than the practice of doctors amongst themselves.
1: It's right? true, and even how long ago you were trained or who you were trained by. Most of my contemporaries, right? I've not been out of school quite a decade, almost a decade already, but modern naturopaths are not as learned in understanding that that deeper, that subtler physiology.
0: What's the reason for that? Are they trained differently now or?
1: Um, there's a lot more push towards being more allopathic and being more acceptable to allopathic medicine to gain recognition and so
0: allopathic um, just to be clear yes is traditional western medicine correct
1: right? conventional okay. medicine so
0: those green allopaths that you said that yes 72 what are those often like functional medicine practitioners okay so it's still an alternative health practitioner right?
1: uh they can be like fun- a herbologist or whatever they would call functional them. medicine practitioners are often mds who've taken a functional medicine course and that gives them a basically a structured assessment tool um they usually use some sort of questionnaire or some interesting um so this would be family testing. family
0: physicians who take on yeah and, extra um, integrative training does that happen in canada too? i know um, in, the, in, the, in the it's US. primarily in
1: the u.s yeah. but there's certainly functional medicine practitioners here as well hmm. or often chiropractors will then get functional medicine training which allows them greater scope in the world of supplements okay
0: so your view on that would be that they are using some tools that you'd use, but they're not applying the whole philosophy. Is that right?
1: I, I've not seen an awesome functional medicine doctor yet. Okay. They're more frustrating than not.
0: You're mis- you think they're missing some elements of how they're going about this? They don't have the philosophy. They're not distilling it down to the cause, right? Okay. Precisely.
1: Sometimes they magically have the little test that unlocks the secret of, oh, it was this key nutrient that a person was missing, and that's when they perform miracles. But I've more often seen than not these prescriptions of 30 to 70 supplements and a person's body just completely overwhelmed by them. Mm. They're not making progress in a, in a direct way. Yeah.
0: Um, so are you aware of any healthcare systems probably outside of North America where naturopathic medicine or some form of alternative medicine is kind of integrated with traditional medicine? And how does that work? A
1: far more common in Europe, and I don't have a deep understanding because I've not um, been there to experience it personally, but I know in countries like Austria and Germany, um, in the oncology world in particular, a lot of what we would consider alternative or integrated practices here are prescribed right by your conventional oncologist uh, in those countries. So mistletoe is a great example of that. Um, well accepted and well researched there or really fringe here you can't even get it in the US with any sort of ease we can get it in Canada but um, there it's prescribed alongside your chemo and radiation 70 to 80% of the time
0: now is there some advantage to that being the case rather than having these two systems separately as they are here
1: well certainly for ease of the patient right here people have to have major education and major advocacy for themselves to be able to access the full spectrum of support and they often their oncology team has no knowledge and Even sometimes over-the-top ignorance that they put up the blinders and are not willing to look and therefore Just give patients the recommendation that like absolutely not that that's harmful even though they have no knowledge of it They just say we don't know and therefore it's bad and stay away from it because we don't know what it will do. Versus if you had a full team where everyone could support the patient, recognizing that they had different areas to contribute, that would always be better. So
0: then the patients here, if they come to a naturopathic doctor, it means they're pretty much going against the grain of what they're supposed to be, what they think they're supposed to be doing. Wrong. Often. And so that means, does that does that select for a specific type of patient then that sees this out? Some that are more independent or have reached a dead end with a traditional medical system or frustrated with it or unhappy with it (laughs) or some that just don't believe in it at all and just want to do something
1: totally different. Exactly. The trends I see are either people who have kind of been through the system and are dismayed, they've had bad experiences, which then motivate them to look elsewhere and say, like, there's got to be something better than this or I have to be able to get better care and so start seeking for themselves. But then right off, the people who get to us earlier, those people have usually, they come to us at a later stage, they've, they've already been through the ringer and have suffered some damages and, you know, are having a rough time. But there's another category of person who, right from the get-go, right from the moment of diagnosis, go, this can't be it, this doesn't make good sense, why? They have this inner feeling that no, there must be a reason this is going on. There has to be more answers than I just need chemo, and it just doesn't make sense to them. Um, well, I imagine my favorite type of people to work with.
0: I mean, I imagine the biggest motivation would be if they don't like the answer they're getting from the doctor, meaning that they don't like the survival odds that they're given. They don't like the uh, side effect profile that they're given. That it might be prohibitive. Yeah, it might be that, and the oncologists are trained to be frank, and they you know, which is a good thing. Yeah. So they'll tell them, "This is you know, uh, pretty much it at the end. We can't do anything for you, and this is just how it is." Yeah, exactly. So, but then that's selecting for a certain type of patient that's coming to you, rather than somebody who's at earlier stages
1: of things. Yeah, absolutely. There's, I think, there's a good corollary of. Um, the resilience that comes with that personality who responds that way, you know gets told the message and doesn't accept it right There's the person who goes like oh damn and they just move into victimhood. Those are the people who give up right then and there and the stats will apply to them. they just accept them. yeah versus the person who goes, no, that's not good enough for me. They have this little bit of fire. they're they're not willing to just roll over and die and accept the status quo. They have motivation to help themselves, and that characteristic goes a long way, a long way to change their stats.
0: Now, the um, view from the oncologist would be that, hey, we're giving them information based on stats, large studies, proven science. Mm -hmm. You might be giving them just hope based on no evidence whatsoever, Mm -hmm. and isn't that, like in their mind, that's unethical. Right. And and, and that that situation is unethical, right? Because you're giving them hope and you're charging them money and you have nothing to back up what you're saying, really. They have large studies Mm -hmm. with, you know,
1: that are with scientific methodologies, right? So how do you respond to that? Well, again, we're working in different paradigms. So I recognize that stats can't apply to an individual. A statistic applies to a category of people. So you get placed in a category and there's, you know, a sample chunk and that sample will have a a certain average survival. When I look at an individual, and I only look at individuals, I don't care what your diagnosis is, sure you have breast cancer, sure you have whatever cancer, I don't care. I want to know what the condition of your body is and you will fall somewhere on this bell curve of survival. And my job is to put you over here on the bell curve, on the 95th percentile, and not on you know, the fifth percentile over here, find their pl- well, influence their place on that bell curve into towards that 95th percentile where they're the ones breaking all the odds, versus standard of care is designed to put people on the average and treat them as average. But when we can influence all those individual characteristics that we know can shift the needle, that are safe, when we can have, um, say, combination safety data that we know we can safely combine things with standard care, chemotherapy, or radiation treatments, we often do have that data. We don't have massive um, <coughs> double-blind placebo-control trials at each of our different therapies, but our model of care is different. It's a complex system, and even the methodology to study that needs to be completely different. A double-blind, placebo-controlled study doesn't work for naturopathic medicine. So, what kind of
0: study is the most
1: typical study that would be out there for naturopathic doctors? Uh, well, it depends. Probably the most appropriate model for assessing um, naturopathic care is kind of like case-control, um, case-control studies where you do case by case in a way, and you do case series. Where you can look at the complexity and all the different factors at play, that's the most appropriate descriptive method of it. But there are different study designs where you can look at kind of smaller, smaller chunks of a treatment like plan. K- or, yeah. um, but they can do kind of smaller chunks. Or we clearly have the ability, and there is plenty of research for inter- in individual interventions, nutritional uh, interventions. Right, And we look at the layers, say, when we're evaluating whether a therapy can be supportive to chemotherapy, usually there's petri dish studies to confirm, well, just on a cellular level, what mechanism of action might be. But then we're looking for um, in vitro studies as well to confirm like, clinical safety, because sometimes we can understand the mechanism that might make sense in a petri dish, but... The complexity of using that intervention in a human body is far different. So we look for those higher level trials for for example any therapy we combine with chemotherapy or radiation. We're looking for human trials to confirm that safety and usually we then have this history of historical knowledge of kind of safe clinical use for hundreds of years in naturopathic medicine where we understand what it does to physiology. We have the safety um, confirmation and or sometimes we have the benefit of at least some level of evidence that shows improved outcomes. And then we're working on an individual basis just to shift the needle. To me, that's just compassionate, non, that's no nonsense. Why wouldn't we do that? When the best case scenario is not cure in conventional medicine, when that isn't even an option, why wouldn't we give it our all on an individual basis when we can so we can demonstrate safety.
0: So uh, that's what I was going to say is, in my mind, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mm-hmm. think the advantage to having them a bit more integrated as the model in Europe, as you said, is that then they the, uh, the people administering the traditional medical methods know something about these other methods, and then they're integrating yeah. them with the treatments they're prescribing so that it doesn't inter- affect Mm-hmm. like it doesn't contradict whatever they're trying to do Precise. rather than two different systems going on and they don't talk to each other it's true um, so the timing of when they get the treatment everything is kind
1: of in sync with them yeah and right now that's just the Path's job right because we have that understanding we have the understanding the training of what conventional world is doing unfortunately the education doesn't go the other way around
0: so back to the scientific evidence part mm-hmm. so now the Cushion medicine has been for a few years is to go more with, the buzzword is individualized or personalized. Right. Trials, right? Which is a step in the right direction. But Absolutely. If you read the editorials in the New England Journal of Medicine, they're all talking about that now. So, and this is especially the case in oncology, when are mm. trying to come up with each right. person's tumor profile is different, not all, even if you have the same exact type of colon or breast cancer. And yes. this person is a bit different than that person. The receptors are different treatment targets different everything's different mm-hmm. so it's individualized we're not there yet but that's where it's going um but one would argue from that point of view that the studies and the statistics that you said don't necessarily apply to everyone but that the best scientific way we have of objectively standardizing and saying what can work and what doesn't otherwise we're going by just like no evidence per se just hope in a way or, or evidence that, hey, it works in that person, but who knows, you didn't control for 10 or 15 different factors. Yeah. How do you know it's going to apply to this person now? Yeah. With, without the proper, you know, scientific method, right? Correct. Like, so how do you address that concern?
1: Radically different paradigms. I don't know. I, I kind of feel like... Well, to be honest, where my mind was going as you were talking there, that... The individualized approach of, of conventional oncology, I think, is barking up the wrong tree a little bit. Okay. The focus on genetics, for example, like that's one of the methods. Sometimes they're just looking at um, various receptors, right? There's finding targeted therapies that you know work intracellularly and um, do their job. I think those are the safest medicines we have um, because they truly are targeted versus like immunotherapy approaches um well
0: that's what the personalized therapies the idea behind there isn't that it's just personalized Mm -hmm. the idea is that it's so specific that it hopefully
1: only targets that targets
0: yes rather than have
1: like a scorched earth approach and targets every other organism precisely you know which is why when i see a patient who um does qualify for a targeted therapy right now. I just go like, yes, do it. Because they're the safest drugs we have. We see people tolerate them. Um, There just isn't that many. But they're like the small molecule targeted therapies. They work intracellularly. intracellularly, So um, there isn't the broad acting (laughs) um, like devastating effects. Immunotherapy sounds really kind of romantic and promising. They're like, oh, it just helps my immune system fight the cancer. That is not what immunotherapies do. They lock onto a certain immune system-related receptor and change its function throughout the entire system. And immunotherapies, unfortunately, usually cause, well, so from the statistics I've seen, generally have roughly double the side effect profile of conventional chemotherapies, except those side effects aren't just temporary toxicity side effects like chemo side effects are they are um like irreversible causing irreversible autoimmune disease for example wiping out someone's ability to produce cortisol wiping out someone's thyroid causing autoimmune pancreatitis like severe life-threatening conditions um they're pretty devastating drugs
0: mm-hmm.
1: i don't think that's a wise avenue to bark up. um yeah, I think... I'll, but I'm, then genetic targeting is interesting and weird, but I don't think the science is there yet.
0: Yeah. I know, like, some progress has been made with biological therapies. Which yeah. They target specific receptors that are expressed on the tumors that shouldn't be expressed elsewhere. But that's still in the research phase, I think. It's been that
1: way for the last 10 years. Or yeah. More. Well, and as many of the immunotherapies...
0: Yeah, but they try to do the same thing. Yeah, they're
1: considered those biological medicines interesting yeah yeah
0: really. all right so if um um if somebody has cancer um what at what stage do you think they should be seeking you know advice or medical help outside of the medical system and i mean from the medical system's point of view that's considered dangerous to be honest mm-hmm. uh, from the patient's point of view um. I think the trend is more and more of that because they do a lot of research and they look. Yeah. Uh, although now it changes in Google algorithm <laughs> and there war an alternative help maybe it'll just go back to you can find <laughs> that information. More. But that's just a side note. But um, at what point would you say? Uh, because what makes sense logically to me is if the oncologists tell you it's you know um, it's a closed road and there's nothing else that we could do. You're on your own. You're gonna die. If then yeah. you have nothing to lose, right? Absolutely. That's fine. The contention is when, you know, there is something potentially curative like surgery, like if it's a cancer at an early stage. Yeah. And the patient elects to instead go for other treatments, naturopathic treatments or any alternative health treatments, and doesn't forego this. Yeah. Nothing, you know, so they can either just do medical approaches alone, health approaches alternative health alone or do both. Mm-hmm. Like uh, what? Uh, what would your take be on this? And when? Because right now, as you said, it's kind of like the patient will have to make that decision on their own. The doctor isn't going to tell them that. Yeah. So if they're going to consider that path, what would you tell
1: them? When should they come to you? For me, the answer is always now, <laughs> yesterday, because the All our alternative naturopathic approaches always work best in the mildest of situations, right? We have the greatest chance of making the greatest good when we have the smallest problem to deal with, right? The The magnitude of effectiveness of even, like, our anti-cancer tools um, are maybe half as effective as, say, a chemotherapy, right? A good chemotherapy drug will have a tumor kill-off rate over 80%, the best of the best naturopathic approach that is an anti-tumor approach like that will have maybe a 40%. And so we rely on synergy and combined approaches a lot to get greater magnitude of effect. So you but have
0: anti-cancer tools.
1: Yeah. So we were back at...
0: So you, oh, yeah. so, you're, so you have, in naturopathic medicine, anti-cancer tools that alternative medicine does not have. Is that right?
1: You mean conventional medicine does not Correct. have? Correct. Yeah. Um,
0: So can you give me examples of that? Because I know in conventional medicine, there's surgery, there's radiation, there's chemotherapy, and
1: then there's the neurobiological things. Yeah. So what would you have that are anti-cancer tools? So mistletoe would be one of them that I mentioned uh, earlier, commonplace in Europe. Um, It has, well, interestingly, there's a lot of, almost every herb, every plant has anti-cancer properties. Um, and the question becomes like dose and, and delivery of the magnitude of effect we can get. But like in a petri dish study, put cancerous cancer cells in almost any plant on the planet, that plant will kill the cancer cells in a petri dish. So that's really cool. And it, it tells us something about nutrition and filling our bodies with a variety of plants as medicines, uh, but we're talking about our bigger anti-cancer tools that have, uh, like, actually, have some established reputation. Probably the biggest, most popular, well known one is high dose vitamin C therapy, um, right? Popularized through the Reardon Clinic and NASHPAS have been doing nutritional IV therapies and high dose vitamin C for a lot of decades. Um, Linus Pauling and his research around uh, mega dosing vitamins also helped pioneer that approach. Um, it has a neat mechanism, not fully understood, which most of our things don't have fully understood mechanisms, even in the conventional world, but uh, at least part of the mechanism for vitamin C is molecularly vitamin C, and glucose, almost identical in terms of um, their molecular structure. They have like one bond different that differentiates them. A metabolically hungry cancer cell gobbles up that vitamin C thinking it's glucose Whereas a healthy cell knows what to do with vitamin C, takes it in, fills up their antioxidant stores, gets rid of the rest and we pee it out, a cancerous cell loses some of that mechanism and it actually will turn that vitamin C into peroxide, poison themselves from the inside out. So intracellularly, the vitamin C gets turned into peroxide.
0: So um, would it be fair to say then all of these tools that are anti-cancer tools really fall under? category of herbal therapies uh, not, ultimately?
1: Probably not necessarily. Because you're talking about
0: mistletoe, you're talking about other herbal, you're talking about plants, right? Yeah. Is that...
1: Well vitamin C is straight up ascorbic acid so that's just a straight nutrition. That's different, yeah. And sometimes honestly they're kind of middle of the road synthetic things. So um Here's another herbal example, wormwood herb. Um, It can be used in a lot of different forms, but its IV form is called artesanate. It creates peroxide poisoning in cancer cells similar to vitamin C, except through um, interaction with the iron that cancer cells often sequester. Um, It's a good booster treatment to vitamin C, so those are often synergized together. Mm. Um, But here's a bigger oddball example, DCA, dichloroacetate. Is basically a vinegar extract, um, and it's the closest thing we have to a natural chemo. Um, it is a great uh, kind of targeted therapy for neurological stuff. It's often my first line recommendation for brain tumors um, because of that, and it will actually cause peripheral neuropathy, like chemo often does, but wonderfully it's reversible and there's certain nutritionals that will protect the nerves that if we take nutritional support along with DCA We won't see that side effect Um, DMSO is another weird one. It is a byproduct of the paper milling process a solvent uh, And it's used in conventional medicine dimethyl sulfur oxide Um, It's used in transdermal medications. So anything you combine with DMSO, it will basically carry it intracellularly so hence it's used for transdermal medications because it will take things into the body um, intravenously it's been studied in combo with high dose well not terribly high dose but decent dose of sodium bicarbonate baking soda um, Interestingly, the study did not really look at the bicarb. They were just balancing the bag's osmolarity and thinking of DMSO as the an active ID. ingredient. Yeah, this yep. is all ID. yes, yep. these are all intravenous examples so far, well, except artesanate um, or artemisinin can be taken orally as well. Um, just different um, ability to achieve therapeutic dosage. Um, yeah, DMSO and or bicarb. We had a patient inquire the other day about the Simoncini protocol. A doctor out of Italy, um, Dr. Simoncini, describes cancer. He thinks cancer is a fungus and sodium bicarb is the best antifungal we have in the world, says he. And he treats cancer with high-dose bicarbonate IVs or cathetered turmeric. But
0: but is bicarbonate an antifungal, though? I don't think so. Okay, because um, if that's the case, I'm just wondering because there are a lot of systemic fungal infections. Like in the ICU, we see them a lot, and mm-hmm. people are immunosuppressed.
1: Absolutely, the fungus
0: tends to go haywire. But there are specific antifungal agents for that. Yep. Yeah. I'm. I mean, if he thinks cancer is a fungus, could could those work against it? Or
1: there are interesting practitioners through the years who do treat cancer as a parasite or a fungus, and they will use high-dose antiparasitic, antifungal, antibacterial, antiviral herbs, um, and or interesting bug zappers. Um, you know, there's practices like the Hulda Clark kind of parasite cleanse thing, and she has some sort of electronic zapper also happens so you match the frequency of whatever bug and supposedly kill it with these frequencies applied to the body. Um, I think it's interesting. I don't discount sometimes the effectiveness but I think the premise is wrong. I don't think that cancer is a bug. I think bugs can be associated with cancer and I believe their role is often actually in cleaning up tumor and helping the body heal. Um, That is the purpose of of bugs and infection in the body for me. They clean up tissue that should no longer be there. And so we often see them associated, but I don't think it's a cause and effect like most people think. The Mm -hmm. bugs are not the enemy.
0: Well, I mean, from my understanding of what cancer is, it's the cell's own ability to replicate and make more of itself, which we sure. need. Like when you break your skin, you yes. need more skin cells, right? But when the checks and stops on that are no longer working, mm-hmm. then it just keeps replicating, 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 and keeps growing, and that's what cancer is. Mm-hmm. So what I always thought is that... Um, anything that kind of damages the cell's genetic material in a way that you don't have those checks and stops anymore Mm -hmm. and that could be inflammation it could be trauma it could be an infection there are cancers that are known to arise in areas of chronic burns yeah um so i always thought that the bugs that's how they figured is when you have an infection and an inflammatory reaction and then it's sort of the uh, byproduct damage of that is what sure. happens to the cells. Would you agree with that? There's
1: logic, but I don't agree. You don't agree. So, what's not your take at all. on it? So, what is your take on it? So, I don't believe that cancer is a genetic flaw or a mistake in any way. I don't believe that nature falls into chaos. I don't see any example of it in the world, ever. It's not one of our fundamental laws of nature one of our fundamental laws of nature is that life perpetuates life recycles and this harkens back to that um that healing power of nature that is the primary force directing life on this planet and its direction is towards healing i don't believe there is a destructive chaotic force but that we're talking does a, the opposite. Yeah, we're talking about
0: so, we're talking about a system that works fine, the body, it's all in homeostasis. Yeah. But for whatever reason, the checks and stops in one it just can be one cell. Yeah. That goes haywire. And then that's how so it's not you can have genetic factors that make you more predisposed for that to happen in one organ rather than the other. Mm. That's why we see inherited, you know, breast cancer and other things. But what I'm I'm saying is it's like a local just it's like a car accident it just happened to happen in that one place in that one cell for whatever reason
1: I think there's always a reason and it's not just oh whatever reason I think there is a reason and we we can address that yeah Um, and I think it happens for a reason there is a biological purpose to cancer our body is doing it on purpose to help us I don't (laughs) think it's a problem
0: can you elaborate on that a
1: little bit yeah so, these ideas come from a paradigm called Germany medicine. Um, and it may as well start from the start. The best way to kind of encapsulate it, explain it is its origin story. Um, Dr. Homer was a oncologist in Germany, working in the University Hospital of Munich. And he had the experience of his son being shot and killed. He following this developed testicular cancer. When was this? Uh nineteen seventy-eight, I want to say. Okay. His son was killed. So very recent history. Germany medicine is not an old paradigm. And this was in Germany. Germany. Okay. Um
0: don't all great inventions come from there.
1: Right? Yeah. <laughs> it it is the birthplace of modern naturopathic medicine. Of and human ingenuity medicine. <laughs> yeah I, modern history anyway
0: it. not 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 the you know not all of Earth's history, but <laughs> modern history yeah.
1: so Dr. Hummer, being a man of science and a, a very intelligent uh, man anyway, but being an oncologist, he thought to himself, like I was a robustly healthy man, clearly the only thing that happened to me that you know when he does his gut check, like, clearly this trauma is what caused my disease. But being a man of science, an oncologist, he couldn't just accept that idea because he was taught very different things. So he thought to himself, well, okay, if I experience a trauma, you know, in my mind, and it somehow translates into disease in my body, well, I should look at the brain. So he, you know, happened to have a bunch of oncology patients, he started looking at all their brain CT scans. And lo and behold, he found these lesions. They'd been seen before on CT scans, always written off as artifacts of the machine. They were these perfect little round target bullseye-looking things. Um, And they were written off as artifacts because that was clearly not something in the brain. That was a reflection from the machine, whatever. But he noticed... Um, as a random example, he had like five right-sided breast cancer patients and they all had this reflection on the same place in their CT scan in the brain. And he thought that can be coincidence. So went back to Siemens, the CT scan company, and asked for finer slices, right? Take a, um, uh, a higher resolution, resolution look, look did, at the brain.
0: Did they repeat the CT scans? Okay.
1: Yeah. And Lo and behold, they were still there, and they could demonstrate they were actually three-dimensional. They were not reflection from the machine. They were reproducible um, lesions on the brain Mm -hmm. in specific locations. And so he found this correlate. So they were real. Uh, They were real. And he found this correlate between a patient's diagnosis and the location in the brain where this target lesion showed up. And then further to that, he explored their histories, and he found these themes of trauma appearing. And so that's dr homer's genius it became the work of the rest of his life to um kind of correlate these three pieces that always go together the location in the brain the organ in the body controlled by that location of the brain and the kind of psychological trauma that would impact that part of the brain so What he came up with in exploring case after case after case um, were basically pretty primitive survival-themed sort of stressors Um, and He mapped the brain based on the embryological tissues of origin. So um, He was able to describe in detail the three levels of the brain which he's color-coded nicely in his works um, but the, the cortex, medullary brain and um, brain stem and cerebellum um, each corresponds to various tissues in the body that respond differently um, we can kind of see a development of the different layers of trauma versus the, the cortex of the brain is our more modern brain. so right
0: now you're talking about describing a physical trauma to the brain and depending on which area in the brain that is that's going to predict where in, in, in the, the body, body yeah, you'll have cancer so this yes. isn't about the mind per se right He's, it he- is
1: actually so the thing that impacts that physical trauma on the brain that we can see on CT scan is a mental emotional trauma a shock um, he called it the dirk Halmer syndrome, named it after his son.
0: But what's the relation between that trauma and shock versus the physical brain injury itself?
1: It's a direct relationship. And it's how the shock is perceived. So there's different kind of themes, if you will, that will affect a different different location of the brain and a specific tissue. So for an example, um, skin is affected by what we call a separation conflict um, and interestingly these the connections are often easily understood through metaphor um, they make biological sense um, and the tissue that responds based on the trauma is actually trying to solve the problem of the trauma
0: okay but what I was getting at was mm-hmm. so his primary theory was that a, a mind pattern or a psychological trauma is what's causing the cancer. Correct. It's not about the physical injury to the brain, right? The physical injury yep. to the brain here was just a surrogate for him to brew. Precisely. Right?
1: That was the, the mechanism that it got there.
0: So ultimately now his theory is what type of psychological trauma will determine what type of cancer.
1: Precisely. In practice, it we usually don't brain. have to talk. We don't have to look at the brain.
0: Yeah, because you may not even have that, right? Do you have to have a, brain, a physical brain injury that you could see with a psychological trauma? When when there's no physical
1: injury? It will always be there, but it's of usual inconsequence.
0: So you're saying that a psychological trauma will always cause a physical injury to your brain that we could see on a radiological study that we could prove?
1: Yes, if it is a shock. So if we have a stressor that we consciously process and we deal with it, this does not affect the brain. It does not cause disease in the body. But if it is an unexpected shock that in the moment we can't handle, our body basically takes that on for us. So we will have a biological response to deal with the stress rather than dealing with it on that mental, emotional level.
0: This is the first I've heard of it. So so you're saying that anybody now with cancer, if you get a CT scan of their head, you will find an injury in their brain. Yes. And has this been shown or proven?
1: Yep, you see them all the time. Hmm. A conventional radiologist is not trained to see these things.
0: But they're looking at these all day,
1: right? Yep, and sometimes you can see them. Yeah. Sometimes they do show up as brain tumors, a healing phase of one of these traumas.
0: So could they mistake them for brain metastases in some cases? Yes. yes They'll say, just spread to the brain. Whereas it wasn't, it was just a trauma
1: for what you say. Yep. Brain tumors are an interesting can of worms because, well... And Dr. Homer has uh, never explained this, but some people will manifest more on the brain level. those are the people who get brain tumors. And some people will manifest more on the body level. Those are the people without brain tumors they have tumors or a physical disease in their body. but brain tumor patients usually don't have significant physical symptoms related to their brain tumor. They'll, they'll have the consequences you know of brain swelling and, and these things that um, we of course expect to see with just a space occupying lesion on the brain or something interfering with brain function. But when you look at the correlate um, of what the disease should have been for the location of the brain where their tumor is, they usually did not manifest that on a physical level in their body. So there seems to be some sort of tendency, which German medicine has never explained for me, or how to identify those people who manifests more in the brain is the person who will come up with a brain tumor versus... Um, those who manifest more in the body clearly more manifest on the body, um, just in terms of our rate, because everybody will wind up with some sort of brain tumor by okay. the time they die.
0: So, how do you how would someone use German New Medicine? Mm-hmm. Like, can you say this specific type of psychological pattern of trauma, I can predict which cancer you'll get, or can you say you have this cancer that means you've had this kind of trauma? get psychotherapy and resolve
1: it and the brain might and the tumor might go away is that like can be so the other massive piece of like the gift that German medicine gives us is the understanding of how the body processes disease so every disease has two major phases um, the active disease process so the active phase and the healing phase so when a trauma happens you know, we get this unexpected shock that in the moment we couldn't deal, couldn't deal with. We enter into a phase called the active phase that's dominated by the sympathetic um, tone of our nervous system. We're stressed. That is true disease state. 50% of cancers grow in that stage. The other 50% don't grow until we enter the healing phase.
0: Yeah, and we know the immune system will be down in stress. Correct. So it is more conducive to forming cancers that we know right
1: yeah kind of German medicine throws that at the window but 50% of tumors will grow depending on the tissue so um, uh, will grow during that active phase those tumors need resolution of that psychological trauma to stop growing they will not stop until we have psychological resolution of some sort it can be a practical solution You know, say we had a separation conflict, a person went away, we we felt ripped apart from them, person comes back, that's going to solve our trauma. And then there can be very, and or need for psychological resolution when we can't have a practical solution like that. So sometimes it means changing our mind frame, changing our sets of expectations, understanding what the trauma was for us, becoming conscious of it in the first place. And then figuring out how to grapple with it. And we can use lots of different methods.
0: So that was my next question was, is it an event or a specific problem that you, an event that you could reverse or a problem that you could solve and give a solution to? Or is it a mind pattern that is something much more difficult to change? Like a chronic, persistent mind pattern that somebody carries with them for years?
1: Sometimes. There's usually, we've usually had a setup trauma sometime in our youth. Sometimes before the age of seven, we've had our first trauma. That one isn't the one that will cause disease. It's the same trauma that happens in our adulthood that will then manifest in disease. Um, so that's an interesting thing. The People same. will have their tendencies, yeah.
0: And you're saying it's the same trauma?
1: Yeah, Yeah, we've usually had one prior to yep. the one that actually causes a physical manifestation of disease in our youth. Um,
0: So you don't think it it can be any, it's usually, will just repeat what happened in childhood.
1: Yeah, and well, it might not be the exact same situation, but the perception of the stress is the same. It's all in how we perceive that stress. And it's often because we have a certain set of expectations that we're rigid in. That's really the secret to disease resiliency, is not having expectations. Because when we expect a certain thing and a different thing happens is when we get shocked. That's the very definition of it. We're surprised by an outcome we did not expect. So if we have realistic expectations all the time and are flexible, that really is the biggest secret to disease prevention and resiliency. Mm. So we had active phase. So those active phase tumors need resolution of that stress to stop growing. So then we can swing into healing phase. Healing phase is dominated by the parasympathetic nervous system. That's our rest, digest, healing phase. And whereas we feel stressed, probably, and like go, 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 still in the active phase, which is the true disease state, healing phase is when we feel sick. We get tired, um, we do the work of repair then. And most people mistake the feeling of symptoms as being ill. But the truth is that that is actually when we are healing. And actually shifting that mind frame from being in that state of resistance, going like, oh, I'm sick and I don't want to be, feeling symptomatic, relaxing into that reality of, oh, okay, my body's doing the healing work. I need to just kind of relax into this is kind of the secret sauce to making it go the easiest. It will speed up the healing phase, reduce the severity of symptoms, and ease people through. But in that healing phase, so the other half of tumors don't grow until the healing phase. Uh, Breast cancer is a great example, actually. Two major types of breast cancer, lobular or ductal. Ductal is by far, far more common. I think it's more than 80% of cases are ductal breast cancers. Um, lobular tissue and tumors grow in the active phase. Ductal tumors don't grow until the healing phase. Um, And this is why the stats on breast cancer, especially found early, or small tumors, are so good. Because it's a healing phase tumor. If it was left bloody well alone, and we never knew it was there, we didn't do anything about it, it would finish on its own, be done, and never cause an ounce of harm to the person. Has it. It's just breast tissue. It's a non-vital organ, doesn't interfere with any bodily function. The course of that tumor is in the first phase of the or the first phase of the first half of the healing phase. Um, that ductal tissue grows back. In the active phase, there is actually microscopic ulcerace, ulceration in the ducts. So once we enter the healing phase, that tissue starts to repair and form tumor. So we actually get something noticeable. Um, The second half of the healing phase, it depends if we have appropriate bugs in our system. The body can use bugs to break down that tissue. Or if we don't have the appropriate bugs, that tissue will simply caseate, kind of shrink into a scar. And if it was found after that second phase of of the healing phase, and it was biopsied, it'd be called benign. Hmm. But if it got biopsied in the in that first half of the healing phase, it's gonna get labeled cancerous. If it was biopsied in the active phase, it wouldn't get diagnosed.
0: Yeah, but I mean you wouldn't be advocating for somebody who they found a ductal cancer breast to say, leave it alone and then it'll be fine.
1: So is that what you It totally depends on their psychological state for me. So that's where my responsibility as a doctor comes in to evaluate where a person is at, where their psychology is at, and what is actually in their best interest. So, someone who is totally afflicted with the fear of cancer in their diagnosis is not in the healthy, trusting state of their body to be able to take a purely German medicine approach. A German medicine purist would absolutely say that. Do not do conventional treatment. It is poison. All conventional treatment actually exacerbates the active phase. It puts you in sympathicitonia, which can basically deepens the pathology, it makes it harder to ever be able to repair. Which we technically know of our conventional treatments anyway, right? The more we use them, the harder and harder it is to ever have the possibility of getting back to normal physiology. Right? It makes us sicker and sicker and more and more resistant to therapy. But a German medicine purist would say that none of that is absolutely necessary. You just need to recognize your your trauma, be able to deal with that, stay conscious, and you don't actually need any tools, a German medicine purist would say. I'm not a German medicine purist. Do I wholeheartedly believe in the information and trust it and see it play out in clinical practice every day? Yes, I do. But... That doesn't mean that everyone is ready for it or capable of being confident in it. So sometimes it's a useful piece of information to help people trust that their body is capable than more than they think it is. And that's as good as it's useful for. And they still do all the conventional treatment. Sometimes we use that knowledge to most appropriately apply the timing of treatment. So for someone who's actively growing an active phase tumor and maybe like growth is happening fast, they're not doing well, that's the best time to engage in conventional treatment because it's aligned with what the body's doing technically. It's not going against what the body's doing at that time. Someone in healing phase Sometimes it's a really terrible double-edged sword, and I've seen it play out a few times, where kind of ill timed um, conventional treatment applied during a critical piece in the healing phase where the person was too fragile, and they're never able to recover out of that cycle. So they were deep into the parasympathetic healing phase. uh, Conventional treatment that pushed them right back into active phase was applied, and it kills them because it's going completely against what the body's trying to do at that moment. So, sometimes I am able to coach people through if they have a decent enough understanding and trust of that information. If, you know, they hear the story of German medicine and they go like, "Oh, that makes sense to me. Like that resonates as true." Those are the people who I will then work with that with If someone hears that and thinks that's a load of hullabaloo, then you throw it out the window and don't ever talk about it again. Because it's not useful and it will cause more fear and more doubt if you introduce ideas to people that don't make sense or resonate. So I learned that lesson early in practice, trying to give hope to a lung cancer patient who expected to die. She was young and vital and healthy. Had a routine chest x-ray for another reason found a tumor and told she was dying even though she had been perfectly healthy this is a classic german medicine story because lung tumors are often found that way they had been active who knows a couple decades ago and are now sitting there as a benign little lump in the lung but found on routine scan and diagnosed at that point unfortunately the trauma that goes with a lung tumor is a death fright and so the prognosis the diagnosis and prognosis of that lung tumor reignites that trauma in a huge way and people rapidly spiral into this death fright right their lung tumor patients are interesting like they're so you most have, locked into this trance of yeah yeah so you have specific, and they quickly die
0: yeah specific types of traumas or Mind patterns or psychological issues that go with specific types of tumors. Precisely. Can you give me some examples of that?
1: Yeah. So there's lung tissue responds to a death fright. And so, biologically, the meaning there, the alveoli, that actual lung tissue, not bronchioles, um, responds to the fear of death by accumulating more tissue to take in more air. We need breath to live. Oh. That's the biological function to be able to increase our oxygen um, receiving capacity.
0: So, is this a form of self fulfilling prophecy? They're afraid of death and they cause it by being afraid of them?
1: Well. Or is it
0: a specific discrete incident, like a fright of.
1: It is a fright. Like, like a near death
0: experience it. or something, and then they become afraid of death after that. Is that what it is?
1: No, it would have been a shock. Well, and it can be in relation to. Um, a fear of yourself dying or a fear of someone you love dying and that's actually the difference between say an individual lung tumor one discrete tumor versus often lung mats are speckled throughout the lungs and that's the situation of um, when it's speckled throughout the lungs that's fear of yourself dying um, versus a solitary lung tumor Um, but often bronchial tumors as well that's a different thing that's a territorial anger conflict those ones are a little bit harder to uh, explain but nice. actually it's not we should talk about territorial anger conflicts because that is the same trauma a bronchial tumor is the same trauma just on a different magnitude as bronchitis our nice little COVID-19 coronavirus going right now around right now is a territorial anger conflict
0: so I was going to ask you, how does German New Medicine then view these, um, for example, smoking, for example, inhalational injuries to the lungs, or as you said, a bron- a bronchitis of some sort mm-hmm. like that? Um, does it see that as, oh, it's your mind pattern and these are just crutches that, or ways or means that your mind pattern the body's using to... Create this outcome, but the outcome was predetermined by a mind Is that how they see it, or do they dismiss it, or do they not look at it at all? Or? A
1: kind of a German new medicine purist would say it's always a psychological, like uh, a complex shock that causes disease, except in the rare circumstances where it's actually poisoning. You can cause so on disease. So, smoking on its own would be really hard to completely poison yourself with. So, that idea of like the little scratch that eventually causes a genetic disruption, no, they throw that out the window. But being acutely poisoned can cause illness. Yeah. Um, And that's how you explain, you know, the 110 year old who's been a chain smoker for 90 years and they're still perfectly healthy, you know, living their awesome life in the hills of Greece or whatever. Versus another person who does smoke and seemingly have this increased risk of cancer. We also have interesting messaging around smoking causes cancer. This instills a fear.
0: Well, I'll tell you a story. Um, In first year of medical school, we had a class that uh, was teaching us about alternative health systems. Mm -hmm. Now, they weren't actually teaching us. It was more of you need to know... So that i know what korean medicine means for example when a patient comes and says i'm doing this sure so it'll be like one hour each week just about one thing yeah and uh one of the weeks and uh, i remember it was very vivid in my mind um this um a native chief came in and he talked to us for an hour or so about generally what they do to heal in their own practices okay. and uh culture and he was saying that how tobacco has a lot of healing properties and he's saying don't believe what they tell you that smoking can causes cancer it's not true we've used it for hundreds of years and it's actually causes health yeah and i remember we just looked at each other and we're like yeah whatever yeah like, everyone laughed sure based on what like you're just saying that and um you know but you know so then i don't know years later i asked someone they said well you know, this, the tobacco they use is different from commercial cigarettes that we use. Absolutely. Which is the filters full of chemicals, so that could be mm-hmm. part of what explains it. Mm-hmm. But you're, from the German New Medicine perspective that you were just describing, it doesn't need to look at any of that. Is that right? It just looks at the mind pattern, regardless of what you do in terms of habits or lifestyle or genetics or anything. Correct
1: and so there's
0: speaking of genetics yeah could it be that certain mind patterns are inherited maybe and that's why they're more common in one family or household right? have you heard of such a thing?
1: these are definitely inherited but i would say it's inherited it's not genetic okay uh, so we get more esoteric there but um systems like body talk deals with that really well and calls it um, eighth chakra influences where we can carry trauma patterns through generations. It's not encoded in our physical DNA in any way, but we can inherit these patterns that can skip generations. So you're talking now about something that is
0: kind of at an energy level and not the physical level, right? Oh, yes. Something that you can't touch, test, feel, hear. Absolutely. Right? Okay.
1: Um, systems like... And that's what
0: New, German New Medicine says about genetics. Is that right?
1: Yeah, genetics, genetics. Okay. FUBI, it says. But they
0: do look at inherited mind patterns, though. Yeah, absolutely. Which they think can occur independent of Mm -hmm. DNA. Yes. Hmm, Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess when you were talking about how German New Medicine and they would say, you know, don't do these treatments, but don't do chemotherapy, do this instead... I guess those are types of examples where conventional medicine clashes with alternative medicine, and why oh, yes. why it's labeled as oh this is just dangerous, don't do that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so well, I and I, I there wonder, is
1: real danger in there. Uh,
0: absolutely, but I wonder if in places where the the two are a little bit more integrated, mm-hmm. there's a sphere of alternative medicine. That there's a sliver of it that is accepted as oh this is safe it's congruent with what we're doing yeah and maybe it's safer that way but like the practice of alternative health over there is a bit safer because it's not this complete black box as far as medicine can tell <laughs> when I say medicine I say yeah. can you tell I'm biased <laughs> oh, in conventional medicine yeah. perfect
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know where my mind wants to go next on that.
0: <laughs> well, it's just it's just that it just seems like this is a very wide universe of I'm talking about alternative health now. Yes. In terms of practices, philosophies, treatments, they're all unregulated. They're all they don't follow scientific uh, they don't follow scientific you know criteria or have uh, you know evidence backing them in the way that we would understand modern science to be, yeah. right? and so except naturopathic
1: medicine that is the one exception that it is a regulated health profession recognized
0: okay so how is it regulated and by who and can you tell me more about that
1: um well so in, you're,
0: you're you're the president of the provincial yes. association
1: of naturopathic medicine right correct poised to become the college Okay. so saskatchewan is actually so that's had, a self regulating
0: authority right?
1: correct just like every other just like health, health regulatory authority yeah So, naturopathic medicine has actually had regulation in Saskatchewan for the longest. Um, It was regulated since 1954, interestingly, and unfortunately, we still have that same legislation in place. Um, New legislation was passed in 2015, and we're still working on um, getting the bylaws associated with that new legislation um, to pass royal assent so it comes into full effect. So, that process can take a long little while, but... um, Hopefully, in the next couple of years, that will actually come through and basically update our scope and bring us into more um, modern, structured legislation. That um, our old legislation is only a few pages long and basically says just naturopathic medicine and the practices we're trained and yeah. Says a few arbitrary things, but the more the mo- modern legislation defines our scope more precisely and is inclusive of being able to order and access locally standard medical lab tests, um, prescribe medications, and it defines our invasive procedures, which we did not have before. So our ability to do uh, certain invasive physical exams or certain invasive procedures like inserting needles um, that are regulated um, acts.
0: Sure. But, uh, But now that exists kind of as a separate sphere than conventional medicine. Right.
1: Yep, they're um, they're their own regulated health professions.
0: Okay, so at the current time, at least in Canada or in North America, I would dare say there's no overlap between the two. Is that correct? In, in overlap in the way that they're actually delivered and practiced.
1: Correct. Right. Okay. Yeah. Whereas yeah, I at... think there's few and few far between probably individual examples of that. Okay. There's a, maybe a few more in the states. For example, there is. Um, uh, oh. What's the cancer center in? Uh, Where is it? Where oh, states? shame on me. That incorporates naturopathic care right into its model. It's, uh, it's, it's not like MD, Medicare. No, MD not Anderson. MD Anderson. It's not that one. Cancer centers of America. Okay. Cancer centers of America have a, a team-based approach that includes like a dietitian and a mental health, yes, those, like your yoga, whatever, and a naturopath as part of every team. Oh. So it's an interesting, integrated approach, but those naturopaths are also extremely limited in what they do. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you
0: you know if that's different from how it's done in Europe right now?
1: Uh, Well, my understanding in Europe is often that some of those alternative ideas are practiced right by the conventional docs. So it's right in hospital that you get... Prescribed your mistletoe.
0: So do you think any medical... Like, if somebody goes and... Look, like, any medical student graduating from there, they would come out knowing some alternative health too, in the way that they would practice it? Yeah. Wow, that is mind-blowing.
1: Yeah, in countries like Austria, Germany.
0: Because, mm-hmm. I mean, increasingly over the years, we've had um, people go to medical school in Czech Republic, mm-hmm. Ireland, and some other places. I haven't really heard of them... No, doing anything like that?
1: It'd probably be more specifically Austria and Germany. Just those two places, yeah. right? Yeah. And I somehow
0: Belgium. somehow got the impression Russia and Ukraine are way more advanced in terms of that integration. Sometimes.
1: Maybe. Sometimes. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Not certain. But we'd have to look into that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I just don't have any first-hand examples there. But often the the people doing interesting completely alternative things there are medical doctors who are able to do it there without persecution, right? Mm. Here, a medical doctor tries to do that sort of work. They quickly get shut down by their peers.
0: Yeah. Believe you me, I know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I think the next time we meet, we, you will educate us a little bit on your perspective on coronavirus. Yes. Um, we can talk about... Everything about coronavirus, um, what you think immunocompromised and cancer patients should do, and how they should be behaving. Um, is this mass hysteria justified? What should we do and not do? And then we'll talk about maybe theories of where you think cancers come from. I think we touched on it, but we didn't delve deep. I told you my theory, yeah. but you didn't buy it. So let's hear yours.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we can dive deeper.
0: All right. Great. <laughs>